Well, the polls are in. What do the people say? The disciples give the answer in verse 14. They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, consensus is not the king, just a prophet. Just a prophet. Now that is the best intentioned answer from this world, is that Jesus was merely a prophet. A prophet. Now, don't get me wrong, these are good men. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, good prophets. They did good work for the king, but they're not the king. Jesus is not just a prophet. This is a less than adequate answer from the world. The world's consensus of Jesus has always been insufficient. What would you say in response to that answer or a question? What, what, do you, what does the world today say Jesus is? Well, to some, Jesus is just a good man. To others, he's a good role model. Well, to some, Jesus is a political leader. To others, he's a prophet, just like Muhammad or Joseph Smith. To some, he's less than God. To others, he's less than man. To some, he's a cultural icon. To others, he's a Sunday acquaintance. To some, he's a crutch. To others, he's a curse word. Who does the world say Jesus is? Their answer is less than sufficient. Less than adequate and is wrong. At the least, it's, you know, insufficient. At the most, it's heretical and blasphemous what the world would say about Jesus. But you need to know that the world's opinion is not what Jesus is fishing for here. He sets up a broad, general question to get very specific and direct. Listen to Jesus' follow-up question. He said to them, to his disciples, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? You need to know something here. In the Greek language, the word you is emphatic. In fact, it's put at the front of the, uh, front of the sentence. You. Yes, you. Who do you say that I am? Could have been how the question came across. Now pause. I want you to ask yourself, have you answered that question? Who do you say Jesus is? Have you answered that for yourself? What would you say? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he your crutch? Is he your Sunday acquaintance? Is he just a a religious ID card? Identify as a Christian. A follower of Christ. Who do you say that Jesus is? The Son of Man, God in the flesh, squares you up today in a sense, puts you against the wall and asks you, who do you say that I am? Every man and woman must answer this question. And you have to answer for yourself. Your your parents can't answer for you. Your friends can't answer for you. The ballot doesn't answer for you. Your religious affiliation doesn't answer for you. You answer. 
Who do you say Jesus is? That is the most important question you'll ever be asked in your life. It's the most important question that you must answer. And I want you to ask yourself then, is your honest, personal answer anywhere close to this answer? Look back down at the passage. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Bree and I recently went to Idaho and saw white snow-covered mountains, peaks. They are magnificent, beautiful. I mean, even taking the ski lift to the top of the the summit and looking out at the other snow-colored peaks. They're so magnificent, so beautiful. They'll, They'll take your breath away. This statement from Peter is so magnificent, so beautiful. It should should take our breath away. It's like a lightning bolt came down and hit Peter's heart, and then a sonic boom came out of his mouth. This is epic. This is huge. This is the Christian confession, the confession above all other confessions. The creed before the creeds. Ten words, Peter said. Well, ten words as it comes in the Greek. And four of the words are the definitive article. So here's the more literal Greek translation. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Declarative statement from Peter. Packed into these ten words is a glorious Christology. Christology is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. It is packed. Let's unpack some of it. We can't plumb the depths, but we can assess and and look at some of it. The first first title, Jesus is the Christ. You need to know that's not Jesus' last name. That is a messianic title. That is to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed servant king that was promised in the Old Testament. He would serve as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people, and he would be the anointed one that will establish his forever kingdom and rule justly on earth as the forever king. It is an epic title that declares Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Secondly, He is the Son of God. That is to designate Jesus as the unique Son, the only begotten and beloved Son of the Heavenly Father. You need to know that when Jesus declared Himself to be the Son of God, that is to make Himself one with God, that the Jews picked up stones to kill Him. This wasn't just a statement of affiliation. Jesus was saying that He is one. He is divine. One with divine God. He is the Son of God. And not just the Son of a God. Jesus declares He is the Son of the living God. That is to distinguish the true God of Israel from the dead gods of the pagans. Jesus and his disciples were walking through pagan country, Caesarea Philippi. In Caesarea, they worshipped the Greek god 
called Pan, P-A-N, Pan. If you looked at a picture of this guy, it's ridiculous. Looks like that guy from Chronicles of Narnia with goat legs and a human torso. That's the Greek god Pan, or Pan. It was the god of nature and fertility. There's a story of a sailor named Thomas. In the first century, he was sailing by Greece, and he heard a voice call out from the Greek islands that said, Pan is dead. Story goes, Thomas hit the shore, and he spread the news. And it was one of the first stories that went viral. Everybody heard this phrase around the world. Pan is dead. Pan is dead. So is Zeus. So are the Caesars, the Pharaohs. So is Buddha. So is Muhammad. There is only one true living God. He is the creator of the universe. His name is Yahweh or Jehovah. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He is the son of the living God. This is a massive statement, a mammoth statement. In fact, Jesus says, Peter, you couldn't have come up with this all on your own. This didn't come by your imagination. This was a gift to you by my heavenly father. Look at what he says in verse 17. Jesus answered him, blessed. It means fortunate are you. Simon bar Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Using the earthly affiliation, the earthly tag there. You're just a son of another man. You're not the son of the living God like I am. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father did who is in heaven. William Hendrickson, the commentator, writes, No mere human calculation, cognition, intuition, tradition could have ever produced the sublime truth that Peter spoke. And I would add, there's no scholar studied enough, no scientist smart enough, no philosopher enlightened enough, no monk good enough to come up with this statement. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the right answer. There is an adequate answer. So let's go back to yours. Who do you say Jesus is? Does it come close to this? Can you declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the the only Savior of the world? That He is God, Son of the living God? That He is the only hope for society, for culture, for this world? He is the Messiah, the one who came to offer Himself as a sacrifice for sins, your sins, and the one who will come again and establish his forever kingdom. Is that who you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? The second point in your outline to move further into this passage is the second question. Who 
does Jesus say you are? In light of who you say Jesus is, if you make this confession, like Peter did, then who does Jesus say that you are? The answer is in the text. Look at Jesus' second statement to Peter in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now that is a controversial text of Scripture. There are a variety of interpretations of this passage. I'll give you just three of them. The first is the Roman Catholic position that would say this makes, G- this makes Peter the first pope. Jesus in this passage, they would say, gives Peter an authority over his church. Now, I believe that that leads to a great error and it is a great misunderstanding of this passage. The emphasis is clear in this passage. Who's the authority? Who's the power over the church? Jesus Christ. Whose church is it? Peter's or Jesus's? Jesus Christ's church. So I don't believe Jesus shares authority with another man, a mere mortal, over his church. That's the first view. The second view is that this rock is still Peter, but it is more a foretelling of Peter's ministry. Peter was used mightily by God as an apostle, that is an author of scripture, and as a preacher. In Acts 2, he preaches the sermon at Pentecost. And God used that sermon to launch his church. And so in a sense, the church was built out of Peter's ministry. And I understand this view, and a lot of good men would hold to this view. But I prefer a third view. Let me explain. The third view, and the view that I would take, is that this rock that Jesus builds his church upon, is not Peter, but it is Peter's confession of who Jesus is. It is, the church is built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, I I believe it's a play on words. And if you could read it in the Greek, it would become more evident. Jesus says, you are Petros, Peter which means little stone. But upon this Petra, which means bedrock or massive rock, I believe Jesus to now be talking about a different thing, I will build my church. Now the question we might ask is, if Peter is the rock that Jesus will build his church on, then why didn't Jesus just say, you are Peter, Petros, little stone, and upon you... I will build my church. He doesn't say that. He says, you are Petros, little stone, and upon this Petra, this bedrock, this massive rock, I will build my church. In context, I believe that is a direct reference to Peter's confession. Who Peter says Jesus is. Peter, like us, is a living stone, a little stone. 
in a big structure. And this rock, his confession, is the bedrock of the Christian faith. It's what we must all believe to be in Christ and a part of his church. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you are united with him, the cornerstone, and you are inextricably united with his people, the church that he builds. Peter explains this phenomenon in 1 Peter 2. He says, as you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus the Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever, listen, believes in Him will not be put to shame. Paul has his explanation in Ephesians 2. Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter believed and confessed That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in this sense, he was the forerunner for all of us who would believe and proclaim our faith in him and in him alone. And we see Peter's identity change after this statement. Jesus says, you are now Petros, little rock. This identity change signified An identity change, not just in his name, but in his personhood. He is a son of God. He is Christ's. And if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then you are his. And furthermore, you're given new citizenship. You have a new membership card. You're adopted into a new family. You're a new piece into a growing structure. Friend, if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, welcome to the church. Jesus is church. So again, I ask you, who does Jesus say that you are? Jesus says that if you make this confession, then you have a new identity in me, and you're in this congregation. You're in my church. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, notice the pronouns. I, my. Whose church is it? Peter's church? Is it my church, the pastor's church? Is it the elder's church? Whose church is it? It's Christ's church. A reporter once asked John MacArthur, Don't you have a great desire to build the church? 
he said, no, I have no desire to build the church because Jesus said, I will build my church and I don't want to compete with him. The church is not John MacArthur's. It's not mine as your pastor's. It's not yours. It's Christ's church. He bought it with his blood. There's a debate going on about who the church is for. Who's the church for? Some people say, well, the church is for unbelievers. The church gathers for non-Christians to proclaim the gospel and win converts. Others will say, no, 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 no. The church is for believers, confessors. It's for the believers to be equipped for the work of ministry. So which is it? Unbelievers or believers? I say neither. The church is for Jesus the Christ. Not for us at all. We worship Him. We proclaim Him. We love Him. We do all things including evangelize the lost and equip the saints for Him and His glory. We exist to worship our founder. And we have his emblem that we look to. The cross on which he died. And man, if we had a big rock, we'd have an empty tomb over here. Declaring that he's risen from the dead and he's alive. Listen, friend, I want to say this with love. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for you. I'm here for Christ. I preach God's word for Christ. For his glory. And let me tell you, that benefits you greatly in the long run. Because I'm not here for my own kingdom or my glory. I'm not even here to meet your desires or to fulfill your wants. I'm here to serve Jesus Christ. And if I do that well, if I'm conformed into his image and serve on his behalf, then I will love you better. I will serve you better. I'll be a better witness to Jesus Christ to the lost. So don't come to church for you. Don't come to church for your parents or for your friends. Come to behold Jesus Christ. Behold him as we sing songs about him. As we get to study and follow him in his word. We're we're studying the gospel. We're following his life. And as we share the love of Christ with each other. The church is for Christ. The church is for Christ. Make no mistake. It is His church. I will build my church. Now, before investing into a business, you may want to ask some good questions. Especially if you're going to invest large amounts of money. Here are some questions that you might ask. What are the core values of this company? And does it align with my values? Do I understand the business well? How does it function? What is it supposed to do? And a really important question is to ask, what's the opportunity here? What what will I make in return from my investment? What's the ROI? Does the future look bright? Will the company grow? How about the competition? What's the competition out there? And how does my company fare against the competition? Well, listen, friend. Jesus' church is a good investment. Jesus' church is a 
perfect investment. Jesus gives us a wonderful uh, synopsis of the benefits, the growth, and the promise of being in his church. This is worth your time. The church is worth your life. Look at what Jesus says about his church. Five things Jesus says about his church. Number one, the church gets Jesus right. The church gets Jesus right. Our confession is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So a core value of Jesus' church is the proper worship of its founder. A church that does not get Jesus right is not a church at all. A church that denies the authority, the sufficiency, and the deity of Jesus Christ is not a church. Because his church gets him right. That's why it's important for us to hold fast to our confession. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast this confession. We hold it fast. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession. We come, we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, and we hold fast that confession. Doctrine matters, especially the doctrine of Christ, because he's the cornerstone, the head, the Lord over the church. So we must believe rightly about him. Number one, the church gets Jesus right. Number two, the church gathers in Jesus' name. This is the first time the word ecclesia, ecclesia is used in Scripture. Ecclesia literally means assembly or gathering. This tells us something, first of all, and this is good news for us at Summit Bible Church. The church is not a building. We meet at a community center. It's okay because the church is not a building. The church isn't an institution or a system Of the patriarchy. Jesus doesn't use the word synagogue here to associate with the Jewish place of worship. He uses a new word for a new assembly of people. Second, the second thing this word teaches us is that by the very nature of the word, these people gather, they assemble, they come together. Jesus is talking about the growth and expansion of the church universal. That is the church around the world. Some call it the church invisible. That's all people around the world through the generations from Christ's arrival to his return who believe and make this confession. But the church shows up in visible form. How? In local gatherings. Congregations assemblies. People must gather together. That's what the church means. It is oxymoronic and inconsistent for someone to say, and I've heard this, oh, I'm a part of the church universal. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But I don't want anything to do with church, the establishment, or those local 
congregations or those people that call themselves Christians. You know, some Christians or quote-unquote Christians like to say, I'm a Lone Ranger Christian. I, I have my personal relationship with Jesus and that's all I need. I don't need the church. Wrong. If you are in Christ, if you make this confession, guess what? Jesus says, you're in my congregation. And as a result of that, you're going to gather. You're going to find people that make this confession with you. And you're going to gather together. You're going to assemble to worship the same Christ. The church gathers in Jesus' name. It's part of what we do and who we are. Third, the church grows by Jesus' promise. Jesus says, I will build my church. That's a future active indicative. In other words, that's a promise. It will happen. Guess what, friends? The growth chart looks really good. This investment is going to grow over time. It indicates stable growth over time. Not by man's power, not by our performance, but by the power of Jesus Christ, by the power of his word. This is a great comfort to me as your pastor. It's not up to my cleverness or my charisma to grow this church. Jesus will build his church. And I find great comfort and assurance in that as a pastor. He builds his church. He builds it both deep and wide. Deep as he matures believers. And wide as he brings unbelievers in and multiplies our numbers. And let me, give you, let me assure you of something. This promise from the Lord Jesus does not tempt me to be lazy. It does not tempt me to say, hey, Jesus is going to build the church. I'm going to sit on my hands and just wait and watch him do all the work. That's not my response to this promise. My response to this promise is it motivates me to be faithful because he is faithful. It it motivates me to strive in my work, to share the good news, to steward my gifts, to serve his people, to shepherd his sheep for his glory. I want to be a faithful farmer to farm the field and have the honor and privilege of being the instrument that Jesus uses to build it. I will pray boldly and confidently expecting him to answer because he who promised is faithful. Oh, this is a good promise and should stir all of us up to be faithful in our ministry, to be faithful ambassadors, to go out and proclaim the gospel, not because Jesus is going to do all the work, but because it's a privilege to serve him for his glory and watch him do the work. The church grows by Jesus' promise. Number four, the church is guaranteed by Jesus' power. I got to take a breath. Getting fired up. This is amazing. This is outstanding, actually, This is one of those times in study where I was just so overwhelmed. Verse 18, at the end of it, Jesus says, this is another promise, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, for as long as I've known this verse, the picture that came into my mind when I thought about this verse were all these abominable, demon-like creatures 
flowing out of hell, coming for Jesus' church. Did you picture this with me? It's like all these satanic, demonic forces trying to attack the church. And then here, there's our king, there's our warriors standing between us and hell's armies. That was what I imagined this verse was talking about. But as I studied it, it showed me something different. First of all, gates don't attack. You thought about that? Gates don't attack. Gates are defensive. Gates hold things. Gates protect things. And did you think about the fact that once creatures, I don't have any evidence in the Bible that tells me that once creatures, angels or people, are sent to eternal damnation, that they are able to get out? The scriptures don't teach me that. Scriptures teach me their destiny is eternal. They don't have a way to get out and start attacking the church. And actually, the word hell here in this passage is the word Hades or Sheol, which could refer to the holding place of the dead. But when talking about the gates of Sheol, I believe the scripture is Jesus here is teaching us the gates of Sheol are death itself. Shall not prevail means that this holding place, that the gates, this holding place, it cannot win because there's a superior force that overpowers it. Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's it? It's the activity of him building his church. So what is this saying? I believe Jesus is telling us here that the gates of death cannot hold against the superior power of Christ building his church. Here's the picture. The picture is not that the gates of hell are storming Christ and his church. The picture is that Christ is storming the gates of death and they cannot overpower him. He goes in and he saves and redeems his church from the destiny of death by his power, his life, death, and resurrection. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Since the sin of Adam in the, in the garden, all men have sinned and are under the power or curse of death. We're described as those who are consigned to death. Those who are under death, predestined to death, slaves to death, held by the gates of Sheol. That's our destiny. No man can break these chains. No man can release death's prisoners. But Jesus Christ is no man. No mere man, I should say. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he broke death's power. He stormed the gates. He overcame them. And he set the captives free. Not even the superior power of death can stop Jesus Christ's church-building plan. He will cause dead men and women to rise from the dead in new life in his name. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. 
He's going to describe this work in the very next section. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God. Listen to this, Christian. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know that if you make this confession, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you are in Him and in His church, then the force of death has been defeated in your life. The sting of death has been taken away. Death is no longer a formidable foe or your destiny. But death is just a door to where you enter into everlasting life. As Christians, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to be succumbed to the weight or the power, the significance of death. It's lost its sting. It has no victory. If you are in Christ, then you are sealed for everlasting life. What a blessing to be in Christ and in his church. The gates of hell cannot overcome him. The church is guaranteed life by his power. Finally, the church goes with Jesus' word. Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What do keys do? Well, keys open or they unlock and lock doors. So Jesus gives Peter, as representative of the apostles who would go out and proclaim the gospel, the keys to open the door to the kingdom of heaven. And what are those keys? What have we been learning? The way that you enter the kingdom of heaven is believing what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Here are the keys. Jesus hands Peter. Now go unlock the door, swing it wide open and tell everyone. Enter by the narrow gate, the door, which is Christ and his gospel. Those are the keys I believe that Jesus gives Peter. This is the gospel proclamation. We go with the gospel that is in Jesus' word. The baton was passed from Peter to the apostles, to the elders in the church, and then to all of us as his ambassadors. Now what about the binding and the loosing? Jesus repeats this again in Matthew 18, when he talks about church discipline. The words binding and loosing refer to forbidding or permitting. Basically, Jesus gave the apostles in the immediate context and the church in the later context the stewarded authority to forbid or allow teaching and behavior that is consistent with his word. This authority is a stewardship, meaning it's not our authority. It's not because we have the power. It's not because Jesus gave us the power, but it is stewarded. It is under his authority and his leadership. We don't hold people to our word, to our law, or our permissions. We hold people to the law of Christ, to the foundation that he laid, which is in his word. 
And so by the word of Jesus Christ, by his word, by his authority, we can say, if you don't repent from your sins, you are doomed, damned to hell in your sins. If you don't repent. It's not because that's my words. Those are Jesus's words. And based on his authority, we can take your life and match it up with the word. And if it doesn't match, we can say with authority that you're not saved. From Peter and the apostles who authored Holy Scripture to the elders and members of the church that uphold Holy Scripture, we're given the keys. We need to go and proclaim the good news so that people can enter the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus. We also have this incredible responsibility, this stewardship and this authority granted from Christ to hold people to his word. And again, it's not our authority, but it's his. And in that sense, what we bind on earth is also bound in heaven. In other words, heaven agrees with our assessment. If the assessment is made, by the word of Christ, by the word of God. The church goes with Jesus' word. Wow, so these are powerful statements about the church of Jesus Christ. Do you think it's important for your life? Do you think this is an important body, assembly of people to be a part of? Is it important to you? I was struck by an article yesterday. I'm sure you saw this article. That droves of men and women gathered at the Buffalo Bills Stadium with snow shovels. Did you hear about this? They showed up with snow shovels because they were preparing for today's game this afternoon. So these men and women showed up on Friday and Saturday to shovel snow voluntarily at Buffalo Bills Stadium. That's worship. They offered themselves as a living sacrifice for their team. That's devotion, commitment. You know, men and women will show up and volunteer themselves for a football game. What does that say of us as Christians and our commitment to the local church? Is it less important? Or is it more important? This confession that we hold to, who Jesus is, our founder that we worship, that we gather to worship, the meeting together as Christ designed and and going out with the word of God to proclaim the gospel and to encourage one another to love and good deeds in the church. Isn't this important? It should be. It should be a priority in our lives. So, what was it that you said was important again? Is it the next playoff football game? Is it tax preparation? Is it the next work or school project? Is it reorganizing the downstairs closet? We've got to get after that. Can we just stop and be reminded here to glory in the person of Jesus Christ, to worship Him for who He is, our Messiah, our Savior, our King, our Lord. Who do you say that He is? And can we behold His power to gather 
to grow, to guarantee, and to send his, his church into the world to proclaim his gospel to the nations. Are these things important to you? I hope they are. I hope you've been reminded and stirred up this morning to be about these things in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come humbly before you, holy God, to worship and glorify your holy Son, Jesus Christ, who through his impeccable life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious, powerful resurrection, We have been brought near to you. We have been made right with you. And not only that, we have been brought into your house, into this new community, into this new structure that you are building. It's a privilege to be a part. Lord, help us to see it as a privilege and a priority in our life. To worship you with all of our life. To glorify you in everything we do. And to prioritize your church this gathering of people that you are building and you commissioned to go out and proclaim your gospel. God, I pray that you would convict us and stir us up as believers in these things that we believe and we say are important. I pray for anyone here today who does not believe, maybe heard the gospel for the first time today, didn't know Christ and didn't believe him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. I pray that you would grab their heart today by faith, that you would give them the confession that could only come from heaven, that they would see Jesus Christ for who he is, glorious, magnificent, Lord and Savior and King. I pray that they would submit to Christ, believe in him, turn from their sin, repent from their sin, and trust Christ today for a new life, for a guaranteed life in his name. We ask these things humbly as your servants. And in Jesus' name, amen.